0: The Apostle Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. Now I, now I praise you because you have remembered me in all things and you are keeping the traditions as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. But every man dishonors his head while praying or prophesying with something coming down from his head. And every woman dishonors her head while praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. It is one and the same as having been shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. A man, being the image and glory of God, truly ought not to have his head covered. But the woman is the glory of man. For man is not out of woman, but woman out of man. Truly man was not created for woman, but woman from man. Because of this, the woman ought to have ability over her head because of the angels. Verse 11, However, in the Lord, neither is woman separate from man, nor is man separate from woman. For just as woman is out of man, so too does man come through woman. Moreover, all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it right for an uncovered woman to pray to God? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man indeed has long hair, to him it is dishonor? But if a woman has long hair, to her it is glory, because long hair has been given to her instead of a veil. Moreover, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning with great wisdom, that you might enable me, a sinner saved by grace, to preach a very difficult passage. That you might bless those who are here with the means of hearing a most difficult passage. We ask above all else, Lord, that you are glorified and worshiped in the midst of it all, that you, Jesus Christ, your name is lifted up, and that we, your people, glorify you this day, this hour, in the proclamation of your holy word. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. For those of you visiting, welcome. You have picked uh, a day to come to this church where we are dealing with one of the most difficult passages in all of sacred scripture. So welcome. (laughs) Uh, This passage, uh, I did not preach last week. I wanted an extra week to prepare. I spent, I don't know, 70, 80, 100 hours last week just reading and studying. This is after years of reading and studying. And I wrote and studied the sermon for this week. And I'd love to tell you I got it, but I don't have it. I don't have it. I'm going to do my best to preach to you the passage that Paul has in Scripture that's in the Bible. We're not going to skip it. Uh, several pastors throughout human history have skipped it. I went and in my research was pulling up pastors that I know and love. I went to find out what Charles Spurgeon thought on this. He never preached it. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. He never preached it. He skipped right over it. And maybe he did and it's just not there. I, maybe I didn't find it. I don't know. Um, we are... We are a church that does expository preaching and we generally move through books of the Bible. And and that means when we come across a passage like 1 Corinthians 11 verses 1 through 16, we're going to preach this passage. As hard as it is and as difficult as it is to understand and as hard as it is to get our hands on it and apply we're going to preach the word because it is the word of God. And it's here for a reason. Um, I can tell you this, that this is uh, probably well argued by many the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. Some of the greatest minds, the greatest New Testament scholars for centuries have stumbled on on just getting a handle on this. And and I am not one of those men. Um, So I pray that you'll be very patient with me this morning. Um, What a lot of the translations have done is they'll try to fill in pieces And so they'll add words that aren't there in the Greek, or they'll take words out that are in the Greek. In the ESV, if you are an ESV reader, you'll notice that it says husbands and wives in verse 3. It's the same word for man and woman. Um, If you are an NIV reader, then you'll notice in verse 10, it says a symbol of authority or a sign of authority. Symbol or sign of is not there in the Greek at all. It's added. If you are an NIV or ESV reader, you'll notice that in verse 15, the word instead is left out entirely, and if you add the word instead, then it changes the meaning of the text, I believe. And so, um, in light of the difficulties of this passage, I went through several translations trying to find the best one, and I finally was so frustrated, I thought, I'm just going to write it from the Greek. And so, the blue handout is the translation that I think best matches what the Greek actually says. Um, I was going to just take one of the major translations, but every single one had pieces of it that I struggled with. And so this is the best translation that I think I was going to be preaching from. And so that's why you have it um, before you, and that's the passage I will be working from today. It is imperative that you know that the church has been all over the place on this for centuries. Um, it's not like we have two camps or three or four If you read 10 commentators, you might come up with 10 different landings on this passage. It doesn't mean that we should avoid it. And it doesn't mean that we can't glean truth from it. But you do need to know that if the greatest minds throughout the history of the church have gone back and forth on this, we need to approach it with great humility. And so do not mistake my passion for preaching, which I am passionate about preaching the word of God, for my absolute understanding of this text. Do not mistake that. Say, well, he's awfully passionate about it. That's just how I preach. Okay? So don't make that mistake, please. I have, I have spent countless hours, commentaries, articles, translations. I have parsed every verb, every noun, every article, every adverb, and every adjective from the Greek. I mean, I have super irrigated this verse. I have wrung it out and wrung it out and wrung it out so that I could come before you today and before God and hopefully not mess the whole thing up. And that's my goal today, to bring some light to this passage. Uh, and by God's grace, bless you, bless our church, and bring honor and glory to Christ this morning. Um, that also means, saints, if you have studied this yourself, and you have come to a different conclusion than I come to today, then you're in good company, because throughout the history of the church, that has happened. Okay, This is no reason for division. Don't think to yourself, well, I disagree, therefore I must leave. This is not a reason to divide, okay? Um, so that being said, let's, let's begin where we left off last week. Where we left off last week was chapter 10, verses 31 30 through 33, where Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And, and that makes its way into this chapter. And Paul saying that includes how we worship God. We're going, to, we're going to do all things to the glory of God, whether we eat or we drink or how we worship. We're going to do it in a manner that brings him the most glory. And then he begins in verse 1 of chapter 11, probably better placed at the end of chapter 10. He says, be imitators of me, just as he's described, as I also am of Christ. He's saying, be an imitator of me. When you live, live sacrificially. Live as a servant. Live, as a, live in a manner that brings God great glory your whole life. Everything that you do, including here as we will see worship. And Paul is a good pastor. I want you to notice what he does in verse 2. We know, because you've all read ahead, you know the church of Corinth struggled. I mean, they had issues. I don't think there's a church in this area that when we talk about a church struggling, they had issues. But Paul's a good pastor. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, Now I praise you because you have remembered me in all things, And you are keeping the traditions as I delivered to them to you. So before he launches into several chapters of correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness, he encourages them. He says, you know what? You're doing all right in some of these things. You've taken some of the traditions and some of the teachings and you're actually doing them. You're doing it in a manner that's pleasing to God. And So he's a good pastor and he praises them. And he's a good pastor. And he admonishes them, he rebukes them, he comes to them, and he says there are several things as well that you are not doing in a manner that's honoring to Christ. Um, And he begins here, and we're going to go on for several chapters now dealing with specific issues. He begins here in chapter 11 talking about problems of gender distinction, male-female, and right order of worship in the body of Christ. Gender distinction and right order of worship in the body of Christ. And by God's grace, we will look at that three ways this morning, from this passage, um, you need to know that, that I have tried to stay really close to the text, and that means that this preaching will probably be more teaching, more didactic than normal. That's just the way the sermon's gonna work out, okay? One, the necessity of gender distinctions for right worship. Paul says there's, there's a necessary distinction, male, female, man, woman, for right worship of God. Number one. Number two, why these gender distinctions are important. And number three, how these distinctions are fulfilled. All right, are you with me? One, the necessity of the distinctions. Two, why there are distinctions. And three, how we fulfill those distinctions. Number one, the necessity of gender distinctions for right worship of the living God. In the first six verses of this message, Paul sets out to establish certain requirements for males and females in their worship of the living God. Now, there's so much historical work around Corinth at this time trying to figure out things like did did the men wear head coverings you know we see traditions like that from the Greeks and from possibly the Jews we certainly know the Romans were the women wearing head coverings were, were there issues of of gender uh, confusion men having long hair women having short hair were there issues of identification amongst the genders? and there's all this history and I poured through it and and what I came away with is that people really don't know. The best historians are are well critiqued for drawing some hard-line conclusions that shape the text. What we can say is this. I do believe we can say this. There were some gender issue distinctions in the church in Corinth. There were some issues within the context of male role and female role in Corinth at the time that Paul was writing. Guaranteed. Otherwise, this this piece would not be discussed as it is. Okay? Uh, So verse 3, let's look. He begins by establishing a foundation. He says, I want you to know, I want you to understand clearly. I want you to know, he says, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now he starts off by establishing, listen closely, an order of preeminence here. where, Where God the Father is first, you have God the Son bringing honor and glory to the Father. You have man bringing honor and glory to Christ. And you have woman bringing glory to man. There's an order of preeminence here in creation. Father being the head of Christ. Christ being the head of man. Man being the head of woman. In the Greek, the word head, it's the simple word kephalē And it means head. And, and it means head in our own passage. Paul uses it going back and forth between being metaphorical and physical. In our passage, it means your physical head. The physical head. It also means the character of that person. It also means a spiritual head. Father, Christ, man. Okay? So he interchanges it, which is not uncommon. Biblically, we know this. That the word spiritual head throughout the Bible, there are generally three things it can mean. One of which is the head being the source or origin of something else. That's one general teaching of spiritual head. Second would be authority and leadership. If you know Colossians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 5, where they address the headship of the husband over wives, that type of head is understood as leadership or authority. But there's a third way that the Bible uses the word head, spiritually speaking. And I I do believe that that is the best way to use it in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And that is preeminence. That is where the, the head is ascribed supreme glory or supreme importance relative to what is underneath. In other words, the greatness of the head is magnified by the one under. So the greatness of God the Father is magnified by the one under the Father, and that's Christ. And the greatness of Christ is magnified by the one under him, and that is man. And the greatness of man is magnified by the one under him, and that is woman. In other words, you have not so much an order of authority and submission as you have preeminence and glory being ascribed to the one that's above. Does that make sense? Just nod your head if you're still with me. I'm going to ask you that because, as I said, as we work through this, I want you to yes, you're still with me. If you need to get up and shake around a little bit and, you know, get some blood going back to the head, do that, please. I don't want to lose you anywhere here. Okay? So the Father is preeminent in his relationship to Christ Christ is supreme in his relation to man and according to this text man is foremost in relation to the woman and in all three relationships notice this the head is glorified and magnified by the one underneath the father is magnified and glorified by Christ Christ is magnified and glorified by man and the man is glorified and magnified by the woman in all three situations So Paul's careful here to establish this because how we worship, the manner in which we worship will either bring glory or as we will see, dishonor to our head. How Jesus Christ worshiped either brought glory or dishonor to the Father. How man worships either brings glory or dishonor to his head, Christ. And so it's important that we understand this foundation. Verse 4. Paul now begins to explain it. Every man dishonors his head while praying and prophesying with something coming down from his head. So Paul addresses his first concern, and that is every man bringing shame to himself, his head, and his spiritual head, in this case Christ, when he prays or prophesies with something covering his head. Now, prayer and prophecy here, uh, most of us would understand prayer. Prophecy, almost every commentator said, we're not talking about the word from God, Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. We're talking about prophetic utterance where you are expounding upon the word of God. You're teaching the gospel of grace. You're actually speaking the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit as we would prophesy today. Okay. So prayer and prophecy. And and what Paul is saying here, whenever a man is praying and prophesying, he should never ever have his head covered whenever he prays and prophesies. Now, it does not say during church gatherings, and it does not say during corporate services. Many commentators believe that Paul is talking about when men pray or prophesy in the context of a corporate gathering. OK? But the Greek only says, and listen closely, while praying or prophesying." and therefore it could equally mean whenever a man prays and whenever a man prophesies, he should never, ever have his head covered. Shouldn't do it, because it's a dishonor to his head, himself and to Christ. Now, several other commentators argue that Paul is not talking about a covering as in a veil or a mantle or a wrap, but actually about the man's hair, and this is why. I'm going to get a little technical. Listen closely. In the Greek, it literally says, katekophales. And katekophales is something coming down from the head. And the most simple translation of that is hair coming down from the man's head. And therefore, I I believe this is saying simply that it is disgraceful for a man to pray or prophesy with his hair being long. With his hair being long like that of a woman. Okay? He, Paul, are you still with me? Paul continues in verse 5. And he says now, so notice though, he starts with the man. So many subtitles on this are the covering of the woman. Paul's talking about men and women throughout the whole passage. Be careful of the subtitles, by the way. They're not there in the Greek. Verse 5. Paul continues, he says, every woman dishonors her head while praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. It is one and the same as having been shaved. And so it's the exact opposite. For the man, it's a disgrace for him to have his head covered when he's praying or prophesying. And Paul says, for the woman, it's the exact opposite. It's a disgrace for her to have her head uncovered when she prays and she prophesies. He says it's a disgrace to her head, both herself, her head, and her head. In this particular case, according to verse 3, that would be man. Okay, that would be men, because that is the head as described in verse 3. Again, the text does not say praying or prophesying in the context of formal worship. Uh, in fact, in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul says, The woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Or 1 Timothy 2.12, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet where Paul puts real restrictions in the corporate worship service of what we would consider general prophecy, teaching and preaching the word of God. He puts those restrictions both in 1 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians 14. It makes more sense, I believe, I believe, it makes more sense to understand, again, Paul talking about praying and prophesying at all times, for men or for women, not just in the context of the church, but certainly here, and any time we pray or prophesy. That for a man to have his head covered would be disgraceful or dishonor, and for the woman to have her head uncovered would be disgraceful or a dishonor. Now, notice what he says in verse five: um, if she doesn't have her head covered, Paul says it is one and the same as having been shaved. In other words, it's equal to when he, the phrase is similar to us: one and the same, equal to her head being shaved. It was shameful at that time for a woman's head to be shaved. Those who had their heads shaved, you had temple priests of pagan worship, you had prostitutes, you had those who were caught in adultery, and you had slaves. Those were the women who had their heads shaved or their their hair shorn, cut really, really short. In other words, for a woman to have her head shaved or cut really short, it was a mark of a disreputable woman. A woman of ill repute. It was a mark of shame. He elaborates on this in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. He says in verse 6, For if a woman is not covered, let her be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. And so he essentially restates with greater magnitude in verse 6 what he said in verse 5. If she wants to bring disgrace to herself then she should pray and prophesy with their hair uncovered. It's just like, let her be shorn. It literally means, let her hair be cut really, really short. But if she doesn't want to bring ill repute to herself, if she doesn't want to bring disgrace to herself, to man her head and God her ultimate head, then Paul says, if it is shameful to be shorn or shave, then let her be covered. Do one or the other. You want shame? Stay uncovered. You want to not have shame? Then cover your head. One of the commentators, Fee, a New Testament scholar... He said, From this we rightly observe the shame seems to clearly be related to her becoming like a man with regard to her hair. Blurring male-female relationships in general and sexual distinctions in particular. And according to these verses, if a woman wants to worship God as she was created to worship God as a woman... In the order that God placed her, Father Christ, man, woman, then she must be covered, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. No one's left yet, that's good. So first, the apostle establishes certain gender distinctions for men and women to rightly worship God. He establishes distinctions amongst men and women in their worship of a holy God. Namely, that a man's head should not be covered while praying or prophesying either his long hair or a physical covering. And the woman's head should be covered either with long hair or a physical covering. We haven't gotten to that point yet. okay? But that, that's the general premise that we start with. Now we know, going all the way back to chapters 7 and 8, that there was a tendency in the Corinthian church to pride themselves on knowledge and freedom at the expense of one another, at the expense of God. But Paul will not have their freedom in Christ, their freedom in the gospel, to blur gender distinctions. He will not allow it. He will not allow their identity in Christ to, to destroy their identity as a man or a woman in Christ. And so he brings these distinctions to bear in Corinth. Essentially, most men, Men, I'm sorry, men most glorifying God and their head Jesus Christ when they are looking and behaving like men and women most glorifying God Jesus Christ and their spiritual head man when they are looking and behaving like women. In other words, the blurring of gender distinction. Then or now, it removes the stamp of God's creation. It perverts the stamp of God's creation bringing about about shame and disgrace upon those engaged in that rather than glory to God. Now I want you to note two things. The type of covering has yet to be discussed. When it says cover or uncover up to this point in time, it is using that, and, and please don't fall asleep on me, it's using it in the context of a verb or an adjective. It is only describing the man or the woman's head as being covered or uncovered. Yet to talk about what that covering is. Okay? you Still with me on that? In verse 4, it sounds like Paul's talking about the man's hair being long. In verse 6, it sounds more like he's talking about the woman's head being covered. Okay? But in both cases, it's only talking about the covering as a verb or an adjective, not as a noun. So we don't know yet what exactly he's talking about. I don't believe. Second point I want you to remember before we continue. And this is, if you, if you don't hear this, then you're probably not going to hear the rest of the sermon. Um... Some of you might be thinking, this is so irrelevant for our time. I mean, some of you might be, some of the commentators actually believed and taught that Paul is only talking to the Corinthians at that point in time, and there's no application of this passage beyond the church in Corinth. Um, and therefore, if you're listening to this about, you know, gender distinction, head coverings, right worship, you're going, this doesn't pertain to us. This is a specific teaching to the church in Corinth. There's only one problem with that. There is absolutely nothing in the Greek, in this passage, before this passage or after this passage, that would lend us to conclude that Paul is now suddenly talking about only the church in Corinth. Nothing. If you read this passage, you have to say, you know what, I think he's talking about all churches. I think he's talking about all believers throughout human history. Because that's, that lends itself well. As soon as we say this is cultural, this is to that point in time, on a passage of this magnitude, then, of course, it doesn't apply to us. So, you know what? We might as well eat early. I mean, let's have a brunch instead of a lunch. Because if it doesn't apply to us, then we can disregard it. The issue at hand, it's not a civil law, it's not a ceremonial law, it's not a moral law. It's something that Paul is teaching, I believe, to the church throughout the ages so if you've been kind of listening with a half ear, maybe you read ahead and you said, oh, this, you know, this, is, this is a cultural thing. It doesn't pertain to us. I pray that you would grab the other half of your ear and, and be attuned for the rest of the sermon. All right? Paul is talking here about right gender distinction in the worship of God, and we, as a people, as a culture, certainly need to hear and understand it. Okay, so first point. He talks about the necessity of gender distinction, male-female, in the worship of God. Second point, why these gender requirements are there. Why do we have them for right worship of God? Why do we need them? Like other cultural moments in human history, certainly was taking place at Corinth, we, of all people, should be able to identify with, with gender confusion in our culture, in our time. I mean, we, of all people, should know that throughout the history of mankind ever since the fall there has been a radical perversion of men and women crossing these lines we of all people living in the San Francisco Bay Area should understand the fundamental uh, approach that Paul is trying to take here where men seemingly more, more so now than in the history of our country are, are, are bent on looking and talking and living like women and women conversely are bent on looking and talking and living like men running right by each other in the process. Men in our culture foregoing their rightful place and responsibility as cultural heads, as God ordained, Father, Christ, man, woman, as God ordained, and women in light of that void, filling that void and attempting to surpass and usurp the position of man as God created So rather than Paul saying, hey, you know, this is just an issue for Corinth, if it is an issue for the entire church, which I believe it is, he goes back to the creation account. And he goes all the way back to Genesis to establish what he's about to teach and what he's teaching. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Why are these requirements necessary? Verse 7, A man, being the image and glory of God, truly ought not to have his head covered. But the woman is the glory of man. For man is not out of woman, but woman out of man. Verse 9, Truly man was not created for woman, but woman for man. And so Paul now reveals the very foundation of his argument. Why gender distinctions are important. And he doesn't talk about culture. He doesn't go back to the prophets. He doesn't go back to the law. He goes back to Genesis. He goes back to creation. You can't go back any further than that when you're talking about mankind. Right? Okay. So he goes all the way back to the beginning. And he says that man is created in the image and man, male, in the image and glory of God, and therefore he enjoys a preeminent position relative to the woman. Now, if you haven't been listening, listen now. That's not greater in worth or value than the woman. Are you still with me? Listen. It is in position of glory. So this is so important because most people hear this and say oh that leads to oppression which it has but only because it hasn't been heard. This is not value or worth of the man or woman it's position of preeminence it's position of ascribing glory. Just as Jesus is equal in value and worth to the Father and yet He what? He has the Father as His head. No one would say that Jesus is less valuable than the Father. No one would say that Christ is less worthy than the Father. And yet Christ it has the Father as his head. So if, a man, if as a man you're thinking, oh, that's right. I, yeah, I am a man and I have, I have that type. That's not what it's teaching. And if you think as a woman, this is terrible teaching, then you're, you're missing what it's saying. And ask God to give you wisdom on that. I, this, is, this is a hard teaching because the genders clash so much that we, we polarize. That's not what Paul's saying here. He is saying the man is preeminent to the woman relative to position in creation. Why is this the case? Why is man preeminent over the woman in God's created order? Paul says here that the man reflects back to God the image and glory of his head. Who is the head of man? It is Christ. It is the one who is to be worshipped and adored. And so the man reflects back the image of Christ because he is the glory of Christ. In fact, the word their image, it's icon. Most of you know this. It's the word icon, and it properly means a mirror-like representation. Mankind, man, man in particular, the males are to have a mirror-like representation of Christ. We don't because we're fallen, but we're supposed to. Just as Christ is the very image, same word icon, of the Godhead. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Christ is the image of God. Colossians 1.15. The image of the invisible God is Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Now, in the Old Testament, the second commandment forbids us from making graven images. We're forbidden. Why? Jürgen Moltmann, the German theologian, said this so beautifully. Listen, I couldn't repeat it, so I just am going to quote. He said, Human beings are to radiate God's presence. Humans cannot construct images of God for God's purpose that our lives should manifest the person and love of God, acti- actively reflecting in ourselves the image of God. We don't make images. We don't have icons because we are to be the image of God. We are to reflect back the glory that he pours out on us in Christ. And therefore, for the man to cover himself with hair or anything else, when he is the image and glory of God, for him to cover himself is to, is to prevent the reflection Right? Right worship is God glorifying us and us glorifying him back. If man covers himself, either with hair or a covering, perverting his being a man, then he destroys the reflection. A perversion of his manhood, portraying not his created design as a man, but as a woman. The woman, on the other hand, Paul says, look again at verse 7, the latter part of verse 7. Paul says, the woman is the glory of man not the glory of God. This is one of the most important pieces in the entire text. It's hard. Again, that doesn't mean that she is of less worth or value. Are you with me on that? But in order of creation, in order of preeminence, Father, Christ, man, woman, she is the glory of man. You say, well, how did that happen? He explains it it in verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. How did woman become the glory of man? Paul says, for man is not out of woman, but woman is out of man. And we know this. Genesis chapter 2 specifically teaches to the preeminent order of man being first and then woman coming from the man. I'll read to you. Genesis 2, verse 21 and following. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. So what does the man do? He, he, he's, he rejoices in the glory of the woman. He doesn't say, All right, get over here. Come on. He rejoices in the glory of the woman. But in the preeminent created order Paul's making it very clear that she glorifies him because she came from him. In other words, she finds her origin in the man from the rib. Secondly, the woman is the glory of man because she was created for the purpose of helping him. Man needs help. It's not even funny. Verse 9, truly man was not created for woman, but woman for man purpose. Genesis 2.18 Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Why is woman the glory of man? Because she finds her origin in the man and she finds her purpose in the man. She comes from the man literally his rib and she was created to be his helpmate. Not less in value, certainly not less in worth. But absolutely in the preeminent created order, Father Christ, man, woman. And hence, Paul draws from the creation account itself and rightly says, the woman is the glory of man. Now, some of you may be saying, what does this have to do with head coverings and hair and right worship? Paul tells us in verse 10, another critical verse. Verse 10, he says, because of this, this being what? Because of this established created order of man's preeminence over the woman, Paul says, Because of this, the woman ought to have ability. It can also be translated authority or power or liberty. The woman ought to have ability on her head because of the angels. Forget about the angels for a minute, all right? Just hold that. We're just going to take that and we're going to lop it off and throw it to the side. We'll come back to it briefly. Because of this, because of the created order of preeminence, because of the order of creation that God put in place and ordained... The woman has the ability or power on her head to do what? To worship God. She has the authority and the power to worship God rightly by covering her head. She has the liberty to cover herself properly and in so doing, listen closely, reflect the glory of God as a woman, not as a man. When the woman is rightly covered, she reflects back to God the glory of her being a woman. Not confused with a man, not perverted to be like a man, not to usurp the man, but as a woman, created as a woman, to glorify God when she covers herself rightly. In the created order, she is the glory of man, finding her origin and purpose in him. And yet, all good, evangelical, gospel-centered, will say, sola de gloria, glory only to God. Glory be to God only. You say, wait a minute, the woman's the glory of man. And when she worships, she should be giving glory and honor to God. Right? Right. Now do you see where Paul's going? By covering her head when she worships God, she is able to glorify God. How? Two ways. Two things come from this. One, this may sound oversimplistic. She's rightly recognized as a woman by God and man. She's rightly recognized as a woman with her hair covered. In other words, with her covering, she is rightly distinguished as a woman created to bring God glory. There's no gender confusion. She doesn't, she doesn't pervert herself by looking like a man. So there's right gender distinction. And, and saints, this is the only way that man and woman created both to bring on glory, God glory can worship him rightly. And it's the only way that men and women can know each other rightly and love each other as God intended. And when we, as men and women, there's a whole other sermon on this, when men and women live as they were created to live, a man living as a man, a woman living as a woman, we can not only glorify God rightly, but we can love and serve one another rightly. And that brings God great honor and glory. Not when the man is trying to be like the woman or the woman is trying to be like the man. That's a perversion of his created order. But secondly, when the woman's head is covered in worship, remember we're talking about prayer and prophecy, when she is covered in worship, she has her right place, her glorious place in God's created spectrum. Father, Christ, man, woman. Not of less value or worth, but she's in the right place. And that's glorious. We want to be in the right place in God's created order. If God created you to be a man, you don't want to live like you're a cat. That's the wrong order of creation. If God created you to be a woman, he doesn't want you to live like a man. There's an ordination to God's creation and it's perfect and it's beautiful and it's extraordinary. And I know why we we struggle with this passage because none of us want to be where we are. Right? The man says, but I want to be Christ. I want to usurp Christ. Or the woman says, I want to usurp the man. And the problem isn't so much God's preeminent created order, it's sin in our lives. We don't want to be where God placed us. And yet, when we live as the creatures that God created us to be, that's when we are most satisfied. That's when we are most as we're supposed to be. And that's when we bring in the most glory. You ever try to be someone you're not? It's a mess. It's a mess. So, by the woman covering her head, she has the ability. She, by the way, this is not the man's ability or authority over her. In the Greek, it's hers. It's her power. It's her authority to do what? To joyfully submit to the glorious position that God has placed her in. It's her power to come into that order. Not trying to usurp the preeminent position of the man who is over her, but listen to this. Joyfully and loving, coming under him as his glory, knowing that when she she brings God the most glory, when she lives as a woman, when she lives as the glory of man, rather than the glory of herself or trying to usurp the man, that's when she magnifies God most. So once again, you say, well, that I don't like that. The woman said, I don't like that. Christ modeled it for us perfectly. If as a woman you don't like being in that pre- preeminent, uh, that, that, that ordained order, then, then you've got an issue with Christ having the Father as his head. Christ modeled it for us. He was fully God. And yet he joyfully came under the headship of the Father. He joyfully and voluntarily and willingly submitted himself to the Father fully God never attempting to bring himself glory and honor not once in, in the life of our Lord his entire life every moment of every day every word, every thought, every action he magnified and glorified the preeminence of his father he didn't pervert now he could have said you know what I'm God too I'm God too Don't I deserve a little respect too What are you doing with this cross thing? Get it away from me. He didn't do that. The whole time, his desire was to glorify his head, who is the Father. He rightfully took the position. And what did God do? God glorified him. God brought him up and sat him at right hand, and he said, heavens and earth will bow down to you. Your name above all other names. So we cannot say, as men, I want to be like Christ, or as women, I want to be like men. There's an order to God's creation, and it's beautiful, and it's right. It's right and Christ modeled that for us perfectly and that's why the bible says that Jesus Christ is he is the glory of the father Jesus Christ is the glory of the father Hebrews 1:3 Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and that you know what that means that means that the entire time that Christ walked this earth God poured out his glory on him and Jesus Christ perfectly reflected it back to him he was the perfect mirror image And he himself God. So, verse 10 again, because of this, because of the created order, because of the preeminence of God the Father, Christ the Son, man and woman, because of this, Paul says the woman ought to have ability over her head, because she had to have the ability to cover herself so she can worship God rightly as a woman. Because of the angels. I don't even know, you know, there is so much written. This has to be, of this most difficult, enigmatic passage, this has to be the piece where they're all over it. I mean, it's all over the place. So, I, I, really briefly, some of the Jewish traditions that made their way into the New Testament believed two fundamental things. One, the angels were guardians of God's order. <clears throat> The angels were guardians of God's order. In which case here, the angels are guarding the created order that God set in place. Father, Christ, man, woman. And preventing its perversion. Man being like woman or woman being like man. And that's one way to take it. Another understanding is that, and we know this from the New Testament, the angels participate in the worship of God. That means whenever you're praying and whenever you're prophesying, there are angels present, whether it's corporate or not. And so several of the comments says, you better be careful, man. You better be careful, woman, because when you're praying and prophesying, there are angels there. There are several others that I won't even go into time to. Maybe after the service, when we talk, you can ask me questions. <clears throat> if you're bothered by man's preeminence in God's created order, or you're bothered by Paul saying, the woman is the glory of man, He reminds all believers in this passage of the distinction of gender and the order of creation and simultaneously our dependence upon one another. There's no way you can take this teaching as a man and and fill yourself with pride and say, that's right, I'm over the woman. And there's no way as a woman you can say, oh, that means I'm going to be oppressed and abused by the man. History has twisted this text and several others to do just that. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Look at verse 11, if you don't believe me. Paul says, however, so in light of all this teaching, however, in the Lord neither is woman separate from man nor is man separate from woman. So what does he do? Paul knows how sinful man will hear this. He knows the woman will say, I hate that. And the man will say, I love that. He knows that. And so he comes along in verse 11 in order that this teaching would not be abused or perverted. And he says, Neither is the woman separate from the man, nor the man separate from the woman. And Paul brings a radical reminder of mutuality and dependence upon one another. Mutuality. We're both created in the image of God. And how so? <clears throat> the word separate in verse 11. It literally means to be detached from something and in so doing, to render that thing void. <clears throat> you know what that means here? That means the man cannot be man without the woman and the woman cannot be woman without the man. If it renders that thing void, if they are separate, then Paul is saying that the man is dependent upon the woman, contingent upon the woman, connected to the woman, and the woman is contingent and connected to the man though distinct in gender and though having a right order in God's creation there is a radical dependency one to another. And we know this going back to Genesis chapter 2 God said it is not good for man to be alone and what did he do? He made the woman. It would have been the same had he made the woman he would have said it's not good for the woman to be alone and he would have made the man. He continues in verse 12. For just as woman is out of man, so too does man come through woman. Moreover, all things are from God. And so even though he makes these right gender distinctions and this right order of preeminence in creation, he says very clearly here, practically speaking, that the man and the woman come from one another. And you can't, I know we hate, we cannot live without each other. Men cannot live without women and women cannot live without men no matter how much you try. And then Paul says, above all that, all things are from God. He's the creator. He's the creator. You want to elevate yourself as a man? You want to usurp the power of man as a woman? He says, remember, God's the creator. Above all of this, and both man and woman were created for the distinct purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. How? Male and female, he created them. So the man's purpose and the woman's purpose are the same, to bring honor and glory to God the Father. So I pray that we have seen, one, the necessity of gender distinction for right worship, covered and uncovered. And I pray that we've seen too why these gender distinctions for right worship are put into place so that man and woman can worship God according to their created design as men and as women. Does that make sense? Do this for me. If you're still with me, you're still awake, say amen. Amen. Well, praise God for that. All right, last point. You ready? Because this is what you want to know anyway. How do we do this? How is this fulfilled? Last question. How are these requirements fulfilled in the life of the believer today? If this teaching is not relative to Corinth, it's not just Corinth, it applies to all the churches, and how do we do this? How do we work this teaching out? Last point. Paul takes the argument and he throws it right into their lap. He doesn't relinquish his apostolic office he doesn't leave it, and, and this, this is a horrible interpretation. Some people will take verse 3, and they say, well, will you just decide for yourself whatever you think. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is speaking as an apostle to the church in Corinth with apostolic authority. This is the word of God. But he does give it to them as a sound argument that he thinks is irrefutable. Look at verse 13. He says, judge for yourself. That means you adjudicate. You make a decision based upon everything that I've said. You tell me, is it right for an uncovered woman to pray to God? It's a rhetorical question based upon everything the apostle has just taught, and the answer has to be no, 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 according to what Paul just said. Now, as we work through this final point, I want you you to notice Paul's emphasis on hair. There's been a hair emphasis all the way through, but I want you to listen closely as we do 14 and 15. Verse 14, you ready? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man indeed has long hair, to him it is a dishonor? To him it is dishonor to him. In other words, Paul's saying, even if I don't tell you this truth, even if I don't reveal it to you in the Word of God, when you look out at the natural realm, when you look at nature, what do you see? You see that men with long hair are a disgrace to their head, to themselves, and in the context of this passage, to Christ Himself. He says, does not nature reveal? The answer, of course, is yes, that men having long hair and looking like women dishonor God who is their head. Now, I can't do too much time on this, but I found it particularly interesting in the most recent history of our own country that the most rebellious times of people precipitated men having their hair grow really long and women cutting their hair off. And you can, go back, you can go back to the 1920s, you can certainly go back to the 1960s. Um, what Paul is saying here is this. Natural revelation teaches us this. Paul is saying that it is equally rebellious for a man to worship God with long hair, for a man to wear his hair long or to cover his head, and in so doing, look like a woman, and in so disgracing the very gender distinction that God gave him to be a man and not a woman. But, he says in verse 15, it's the opposite for the woman. Verse 15, he says, if a woman has long hair to her, it is glory. For the man to worship God, it's a dishonor for his hair to be long like a woman. And then Paul turns around and says, but for the woman, her hair, for her hair to be long, it is her glory. It is a glo-. literally it says, it is a glory to her It is glorious to her. Why? Because we have already established that. It is glorious to her because it is her covering that she might come into the presence of God through prayer and prophecy and she might worship him and in so doing magnify and reflect his glory back to him as a woman, not in the perverted image of a man. With long hair, she's able to worship God as a woman, looking like a woman, looking like the gender that God created her to be. And with her long hair, she's able to take her rightful, glorious place in God's preeminent created order Father, Christ, man, woman. Not dishonoring her own head, or dishonoring man, or dishonoring Christ by being uncovered. Now, look at verse 15 again. Verse 15 says, If a woman has long hair, to her it is glory. Why? Because long hair has been given to her instead of a veil. It's been given to her by God instead of a veil. In verse 15, this is the first time in these 16 verses, in fact, it's the only time that the word veil or wrapped is used as a noun. It's the first time. Every other time that the word is used, katakalipto or katakalupto, It literally means a covering of some kind, but it doesn't describe it. And then we get to this verse and Paul uses a completely different word. It's parabolatou. And it literally means a physical covering like a wrap or a veil, not hair. Katakafale, katakalyptu, hair, potentially. But here he makes a distinction. Why am I saying this? Verse 15, as I read it, as I read it, if a woman has long hair, to her it is glory. Why? Because long hair has been given to her instead, auntie in the Greek, instead of a veil, instead of a mantle, instead of a covering. So, what Paul's saying here, I believe, makes sense in the context of the rest of the passage. Look at verse 4 again. If Paul indeed is talking about hair, In verse 4, he says, Every man dishonors his head while praying or prophesying with something coming down from his head, long hair. Therefore, that man should keep his hair short, distinguishing himself as a man rather than a woman, and not bringing dishonor to his head, Christ. Verse 5, And every woman dishonors her head while praying or prophesying with her head covered. If the woman truly needs to be covered when she worships God in prayer and prophecy so that she doesn't dishonor herself, dishonor man, or dishonor Christ, then our our God, being so gracious, gives the woman long hair, equips her with long hair for all of human history so that she might worship God through prayer and prophecy being rightly covered. To glorify God without bringing shame to the man, shame to herself, or shame to Christ. So that she might worship God in the image of the woman. And not the image of the man. The long hair provides for the woman a covering, a permanent covering, instead of any physical covering like a, a shawl or a wrap or a veil. Look at verse 15 one more time. "If a woman has long hair, to her it is glory, because long hair has been given to her instead of a veil. Her long hair is her glory because it satisfies the requirements of of this right worship of God. Her long hair is her glory because it enables her to worship God as a woman, not looking like the image of a man. Her long hair is her glory because it is her ability. Look at verse 10. The woman ought to have ability or power on her head. It is her ability to enable her to take her right, glorious place in God's preeminent creation. Father, Christ, man, woman. It is a glory to her. And so Paul concludes this teaching with one final statement. He says in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, he says, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, some people interpret that as saying that, Paul's saying we have no such custom of being contentious. Well, that's really not a custom. That's just human nature, right? That's, even though that works, it works grammatically in the Greek, It doesn't really play out here well. Other translators add a word. And if you have an NIV or ESV, you'll see this. They say we have no such other custom or we have no such other practice. And if we do that, then Paul is talking about his entire argument, right? But the Greek simply says this. We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And if Paul is talking about the long hair of a woman being her covering, then he is saying we have no such custom of veiling as apostles or as churches. We don't have that custom. If that's what he's saying here. If in fact the woman's long hair replaces the need for a veil, then Paul is saying neither we the apostles nor the churches of God practice the custom, practice the practice of women wearing physical coverings in the form of a veil or a wrap. Now if some of you are still saying, what does this have to do with worship? What does this have to do with men and women and headship and gender distinction? It's simple. It is to rightly glorify God. If God, our Father, is the preeminent one, and this is how he created us, then we want to worship him and know him and love him as he created us, not perverting ourselves to be like someone we're not, the man like the woman or the woman like the man or the man like Christ or the woman like Christ but as God created us, as he ordained man and woman to be. The focus on this passage is not head coverings. The focus is the right glory of God as men and as women according to the order he ordained. And that's what we don't like. I mean, the bottom line, when we get agitated over these teachings, we just don't like it. And what are we doing? We're fighting against God. This is how he created it. This was his order. And Everything God does is perfect. Everything God does is beautiful. This distinction is important so that we can rightly glorify God as He designed us. The man, looking like a man, behaving like a man, loving like a man, serving like a man, reflecting the glory of His head who is Jesus Christ. When a man lives like a man, as God called him to live, he magnifies Christ. Man, that should be your sole purpose in life. Be a man as God created you to be, as the Bible prescribes, not as the world tells us. And you will glorify the glorious one, Jesus Christ. That means the woman looking, behaving, living, serving, loving, as a woman, as a glorious woman, created in the image of God too. Distinguishing herself rightly from man, but not independent of man, because the man is dependent upon the woman and the woman dependent upon the man. Right distinction and placing yourself by covering yourself in the right order of creation and in so doing glorifying the man because you are his glory, women, and then glorifying your ultimate head, Jesus Christ. Neither the man nor the woman Any man or any woman, covered or uncovered, could do any of this glorification if not for the work of the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. None of this dialogue makes any sense unless Christ came first to save sinners like us that we might glorify God. We're talking about how to glorify God rightly with gender distinction and order of creation. And Jesus says, none of that would have been possible had I not done the work of the cross. Without the life of Jesus, who perfectly glorified God the Father his entire life, this is such a, a, a wonderful thought, that Jesus Christ, in becoming a man, he voluntarily put himself under the Father. He, he voluntarily came and said, I will give all glory and honor with my whole life, every moment of every day, to the preeminent one, my glorious Father, because he's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Christ got it. Christ understood how magnificent the Father is. And so Jesus came to do that great work, not just to magnify the Father, but to save wretches like us, to bring us in, to bring us into this glorious order of creation, Father, Christ, man, woman. He satisfied for us all those saved by grace, our created purpose, receiving the glory of God and reflecting it back to him. He did that for us. We can't do that And most of us don't want to do that. But God, Christ did that perfectly. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon writes. He says, When you come to gaze, this is not from his sermon on 1 Corinthians 11, obviously, when you come to gaze upon the face of Christ Jesus, you have a mirror equal to the reflection of the eternal face, the Father. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. His name is Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, He is the image of God, the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. If your concept of Christ, Spurgeon writes, is truthful, it will coincide with the true idea of God and you will exclaim, this is the true God in eternal life. And just like Thomas, he said, you will salute the wounded Savior with the cry, my Lord, my God. That's the right response to this entire sermon. My Lord, my God, when you see Christ. Because he is the perfect image of the Father. And he came to bring us in, man and woman alike, to redeem us and bring us into his kingdom and into his family so that we might worship God rightly as men and women as God created. Christ did this great work. Whether you know it or not, God created you to receive his glory and reflect it perfectly back to him. We did that before the fall. We did that before the fall. But as a result of sin, all mankind was rendered impotent, unable, and grievously unwilling to worship God as creator and Lord. And thankfully, Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the perfect image of God, the brightness of his glory, he did that on our behalf, he did that in our stead. He came as a man with God as his head and he worshiped God perfectly. And he did this through the ministry of the cross living a perfect life of worship and dying a sinner's death. Jesus Christ opened the door for you and for me and for every rebellious gender confused glory starved broken reflector man and woman every single one of us. Bringing us back in. He calls us to come back into a right relationship with God the Father. If you're a man as a brilliant man redeemed by the blood of Christ, if a woman as a brilliant woman redeemed by the blood of Christ, he calls us into that. Repenting and trusting in the work of Christ and the cross to save you from the wrath of God, receiving forgiveness for all of your sins, taking the blood of Christ and enjoying the power of the Holy Spirit to bring him honor and glory for he is the preeminent one That means this, saints, and I'm going to close. Because of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross, men and women everywhere are called to participate in the worship of our preeminent, glorious, worthy-to-be-praised Father in heaven. That's the calling. For every man and every woman to repent and believe and follow Christ and as a man, that means worshiping God, glorifying God as a man. And if as a woman, worshiping God and glorifying God as a woman. This is the thrust of the passage. However you come down on long hair, short hair, covering, this is the thrust of the passion passage. To worship and glorify and honor God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That we can agree on, yes? yes. All right. I'll pray we'll sing a little more we're going to eat and then I will come back after the lunch and stay here for a while if you have questions I will do my best I'll open up I brought my Greek text and we'll just kind of work our way through it to try to answer some of these questions okay and if not you want to just chew on it longer let me say this be careful in the degree to which you read be careful how much you read on this because it gets so wide and so big you'll, you'll drop it all together it's a lot So just be be cautious on that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage being in here. As hard as it is, and as difficult as it is to understand, um, I, I praise you for being so gracious with us that you would not only redeem us and save us in Christ, but you would call us to worship you, men as men and women as women. That you would even give us instruction on how to have right gender distinctions amongst men and women you would reveal to us the the preeminent order of your creation, the glorious nature of your creation, with Father being preeminent to the Son and the Son being preeminent to man and man to woman, not changing value or worth, but showing us that there's a right order to worship. I pray you would humble all of us, Father. Humble us knowing that apart from Christ and His great work, none of us would be here. None of us could worship you, not as a man or a woman. I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom. We need it to understand this passage well. Help us, help our our minds, help us to, to guard ourselves from false teachings and to understand this passage and then to apply it as men and women to our lives that we might bring you the most glory because you are certainly most worthy. In Christ's name, amen.